It's really described in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4, where it says that God is rich in mercy, wherein that he loved us and has forgiven us of our trespasses. Mercy from a theological position, which I love to dwell in, mercy from a theological position is the character of God whereby he bestows willingly upon us that which we do not deserve. Grace, on the other hand, is again God's character in that he keeps from us that which we really do deserve. But mercy is that glory characteristic of God whereby he showers us with that which we do not deserve. Let me give you an illustration, if I may. A very well-known individual in a particular city was driving and he was late for an appointment. And it wasn't long as he was driving, as he looked in his rearview mirror, that he saw another vehicle pull behind him that had different lights than what he did. The police officer pulled him over and initially recognized the individual and said to him, I'm not going to give you a ticket because apparently the individual in the car explained to this police officer why he was driving an excessive amount of speed. The police officer seeing that he was telling the truth and knowing the character of the individual who was sharing this, said to him, I'm not going to give you a ticket, but I will warn you about your speed. Be very, very careful. Satisfied that the police officer both did not give him a ticket and at the same time gave him inf information that was helpful, he sped off again on his route. Not paying attention to not, not only his speedometer, but also the advice of the previous police officer, another police officer pulled him over. And he began to, again, reiterate the same story the same account of why he was speeding. And everything was going well until the previous police officer pulled up beside the officer that stopped him again. He got a ticket because mercy wasn't granted. The first was mercy because... He received that which he didn't deserve. He deserved the speeding ticket, but the police officer decided not to. The second time was not so generous. Sometimes mercy, we like mercy. But there's times when we don't want mercy to be granted to other individuals. That was the problem of Jonah. And so through the study of the book of Jonah, which is going to take us many laps around the track, you're all thinking only four sermons because there's only four chapters. No, we're, we're going to spend a while. We're not even going to get through verse 3 this morning. 
But what we are going to investigate continually is God's rich mercy in the book of Jonah. Before we begin this morning, let's pray together, shall we? Our God, we thank you. As the songs have already reiterated of how wonderful your mercy is and that you are rich in it and that you love us that much that you forgive our trespasses. Your mercy is glorious even though it is in many ways undeserved, but yet you willingly pour it out day after day, moment after moment, because you're rich in mercy. Even this morning, O oh Lord, our, our minds and our hearts go out to some in our congregation who are struggling with flu and with colds. I ask, Lord, that your mercy would fall upon them. That they would sense your presence, and though they cannot be here in person, I thank you, Lord, that they are here in spirit as they are praying for us at their homes. Lord, I also want to lift up to you Marlene as she is going to be facing surgery on Tuesday. Lord, I pray that your mercy would be rich. Your grace would be abundant. And that your presence would be overwhelming. I ask, Lord, that you would give to Marlene and Will the peace that passes all understanding that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. As the preparations for her surgery are coming about, Lord, I pray that you would guide the thoughts and the hands of the surgeons that will be performing what you have given them wisdom and knowledge to do. And I pray that your healing presence would be so evident in that, that operating room that all would go well according to your will. I pray, God, that through this experience that Marlene and Will will be used of you to be able to touch the heart and life of other people. Maybe it might be a nurse or it might be a, an individual who just passes through their room. I pray, O oh God, that you would give to them the words to say to bring glory to your name. And we thank you, God, also for the preciousness of your word. The book of Jonah is so applicable for us today that I'm afraid we're going to find more of ourself in this book. 
And I pray, Lord, in this journey that we're about to take would be advantageous for us to know more about your mercy. It's something that Jonah struggled with. It's something that we struggle with. And may the lessons of Jonah's life be used by you through your word, empowered by your Holy Spirit, that it would infuse our lives so that, Lord, we would be conduits of your mercy to other individuals. Guide our thoughts, our words, Empower us, O Lord, to hear from you today. And we'll be careful to praise you and to thank you for without you we can do nothing. So may your glory be evident this day as we open this book of Jonah. And we'll praise you and thank you in your name. Amen. Most likely when you hear the book or the word or the book of Jonah, the first thing you begin to think of is a great fish. We've been taught that through our Sunday school lessons and as valuable as they are and as true as they are, I want to tell you this morning that that's not the main character of the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah begins with God and ends with God. It's God who gives the message. It's God who gives the storm. It is, it is God who gives the fish. It's God who makes the fish vomit. It's God who infuses the prophet. It's God who changes a whole city. It's God who brings up A shade for the prophet. It's God who infuses that shade with a worm. And then it's God who asks a question. Why, Jonah, do you feel this way? Begins and ends with God. But in it, we see this wonderful truth of God's mercy. Follow along as we read the first three verses of Jonah chapter 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Jonah got up, but to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. As far as the word coming to a prophet from the Lord, there's nothing new here. Prophets were used by God to come to the nation of Israel and warn them and to instruct them. But what we find in the opening statement 
is something that is not normal in the eyes of the prophets. You'll notice that the direction that God gave to Jonah was to go to Nineveh. Nineveh. That makes Jonah the unlikely emissary. And let me give you three reasons why that's, that's true. The first reason is this. Is that a Hebrew prophet is called to go to a Gentile nation. A Hebrew prophet is called to go to a Gentile nation. There were other prophets who spoke sparingly concerning other nations, but none of them, like Jeremiah, Amos, Haggai, none of them were called to go to that city or that nation. They wrote against them God's impending doom and judgment. But here... Jonah is to go to a Gentile nation. And Jonah didn't like it. Has God ever asked you to do something that you don't like? Has God ever revealed to you something from his word that doesn't settle with you very easily. Well, then you're in the boat with Jonah. Jonah is not interested in going to where God had called him to do because prophets of God were only supposed to go to God's people. The second thing, the second reason that Jonah is an unlikely emissary is this. How could God be that interested in a kingdom and a city that was bent on nothing more than destruction? I won't take the time to walk you through a historical understanding of the kingdom of Assyria, but I can highlight it this way. They were a pre-21st century terrorist group. They hated people. They woke up hating people. They went to sleep hating people. People that were not of their kingdom. And you can read from a historical perspective from their annals that were written that one of the things that they would do as they would conquer another land is they would fillet the flesh off of their enemies, stretch them out, and then use them as a canvas to paint the picture of what they had just done. They hated people. 
And, and Jonah could not come to the grasp with the fact that why would God be interested in them? Why wouldn't he just wipe them off the face of the earth? In the 1972 Olympics, it was the first time that the United States Olympic wrestling team was noted to be powerful. The Peterson brothers were part of that team. Dan Gable was a part of that team in 1972. They did a documentary on Dan Gable and what he would do to get ready for the Olympics. And in his basement of his parents' home, he had a gym that was designed to punish him of not only weights, but also of obstacles that he had to walk through carrying weights. He was getting ready for the battle. But what was interesting, as the commentary was, as he was going down the steps into the basement, there was a sign above the headboard before he entered the basement, and it said two words, Beat Russia. That's what he lived for. He viewed them as the enemy, to beat them into submission. At that time, Russia was considered the powerhouse of freestyle wrestling. And Dan Gable was about to change that. He had a distaste for them, so much so that it drove him that he worked out about eight hours a day to get ready. And yes, he did win the gold medal in his weight class that year. You can envision what, through that illustration, what Jonah was thinking. Why would God be interested in that city? of nothing more than murderers. The third reason that we need to at least look at is this. That Jonah is the one who's called. To understand what we mean by that, just mark in your notes there, 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25. In 2 Kings chapter 14, Jonah is a prophet to Jeroboam, who was king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And in fact, Jeroboam the second, number two. Because the previous verse of, chapter, of, of verse 25 says that there's another Jeroboam. But Jonah is a prophet to the second one. And when you read past verse 25, you come to realize that during Jeroboam's reign, Jeroboam was active in military conquest. He regained back land that God promised the nation of Israel that was once taken away. And it was Jonah who was there going, yeah. We like that. 
we got back at individuals who didn't treat us right. That's the prophet here. He doesn't want to go to a group of people that he doesn't like to tell them a message of mercy from God. You know the message because later on in in chapter 3, the message of God to the, the people of Nineveh is this. You've got 40 days to turn around. But if you don't, I'm going to wipe you out. I paraphrased it for you. Jonah would rather have said, you got four minutes to turn. Not 40 days. Because in a 40-day period of time, Jonah realizes that maybe, just maybe, God might be merciful to them. And he didn't want that to happen. So Jonah refuses God. He refuses God, first of all, in a practical sense. In a very practical sense. Why would this city that is bent on destruction and cruelty Why would they pay attention to a Jewish prophet? Someone described it this way. It's almost like a Jewish rabbi in 1941 standing in the middle of Berlin and saying to the Nazis, judgment is coming. How long do you think that Jewish rabbi would have lasted? Jonah is saying, they're not going to pay attention to me. They hate me. So God, I'm not going. I'm not going there. Uh, The second reason is a theological sense. First, practical. Second, theological. And Jonah's saying this. God, a few years ago, before you gave me a command, another prophet by the name of Nahum, in chapter 3, has said that you're going to destroy Nineveh. Now, and we've all had these theological discussions with God, haven't we? Now, if that is what you're going to do, then why should I waste my time to do something that you're asking me to do? What happens if they turn? What happens if they do get saved? Then, God, you're going to be looked at as a liar. Now, we've all had that discussion with God, haven't we? 
maybe not in the sense of God sending us to Nineveh, but we've had wrestling matches with God. We're thinking God's asking us to do something that just doesn't make sense. Go to Herndon, Doug, and where in the world is Herndon? Oh, it's near Sunbury. Well, as if that's going to be a big help. Go spend four years in Milton Hershey's school scrubbing toilets. I don't deserve this, God. Really? You don't deserve this. We've all had those kinds of wrestling matches with God, and I guarantee you, you've lost. You've lost. Jonah both practically and theologically, lays it out before God and says, I ain't going. I'm going to protect myself, and I'm going to protect you, God, as if God needs to be protected. But the real issue is this. Jonah doesn't trust God. Doesn't trust God. Jonah just thought this, that because of God's idea doesn't make much sense to me, it doesn't seem to be a good idea, thus I am not doing it. It can't be right. It can't be. I'll give you an example. In Genesis chapter 2, God gave a command to Adam. He said, of all the trees in the garden, you may freely eat except one. You may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Later on in chapter 3, the same issue is brought up by the serpent. Hath God really said? Eve, not recognizing that there was any good reason. God, you didn't explain it to us. All you said that if we eat of it, or even touch it, we'll die. But you didn't explain it thoroughly. You didn't, you didn't give us all the information. And, and because it looks good... And because we can envision it to take us to a place that we want to go, what you gave for us as an instruction doesn't make much sense, so we're taking over at this point in time. And we're going to succumb to that choice. 
You see, don't blame it all on the serpent. He only set a question. He didn't make them do it. They decided to do that. We are faced every single day, almost every moment of every single day, with two decisions. Will I or will I not trust what God says? Jonah says, this doesn't make any sense. So, God, I'm taking over. In this first three verses, we are given, in the book of Jonah, particularly, we are given two ways that we can run away from God. The Apostle Paul highlights those two in Romans 1 through 3. Turn with me very quickly to Romans chapter 1. You know, keep a, if you have one of these wonderful things, keep it there in Jonah, we'll come back. But Romans chapter 1. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 and 2 give to us two ways that we can run away from God. Romans chapter 1 verse 29 says this. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They're full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceits, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrusting, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know God, just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. The first way we run away from God is to totally discredit Him and everything that He has to say. I will not do what you've called me to do. The second reason is in chapter 2 of the book of Romans. And then we begin at verse 14. So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the works of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. 
their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are superior, being instructed from the law, and if you are convinced that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law, you then, who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? You who boast on the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. After the Apostle Paul highlights these two ways of running away from God, he comes to the conclusion in chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can either run away from God by totally dishonoring him, not believing in whatever he has to say, or you can dishonor God or run away from God by being so self-righteous and moral that you sense God owes you something. The illustration in the New Testament is written for us in Luke chapter 15. Turn to Luke chapter 15 and see how these two ways are fleshed out for us. Luke chapter 15. A very familiar story that Jesus shares beginning at verse 11 through the end of the chapter. You probably have the heading, the parable of the prodigal son. Both of those ways that Paul described in Romans 1, 2, and 3 are evident in Luke 15. The youngest son comes to the father and says, I want to disown you. Give me everything that I got coming. And he leaves. The oldest son stays. But later on, something happens that really brings to light the heart of the oldest son. The youngest son, who has gone and lost everything, wasted everything, decides to come back. The father sees him, 
and he throws a welcome home party, slaughters the prize sheep. And the oldest son is there, and he hates it. Why? Because he thinks, I've stayed here, I've done everything you've asked me to do, and you're doing something that I don't like. Thus, I'm done. Back in the book of Jonah, we see both of these systems of running from God. In chapter 1, Jonah leaves, heads to Joppa to get on a boat going to Tarshish for the purpose of getting away from the presence of God. As a prophet, he should have known that that's impossible. But that's what sin does, doesn't it? It clouds our mind about who God is. And you'll notice, first of all, that Jonah went down to Joppa. When you leave God, when you desire to walk away from him, the direction that you will go will always be down. And then Jonah had to pay a fare to get on the boat. When we decide to walk away from God, there's always a payment. There always will be a payment for that. But the second act is recorded for us in chapter 4. Jonah was angry with God because he did something that he didn't like. And in both cases, when we get to those two passages, you'll find out that Jonah's reaction was, just kill me. I'd rather be dead than do or even witness your mercy. I trust we would never get to that place. What Jonah did not do in conclusion is this. Jonah forgot to look at his own life. He wasn't perfect. And if it wasn't for God's mercy, where would Jonah be? Let me bring that forward a couple of thousand years. If it wasn't for God's mercy, where would you be? That's the book of Jonah. It's the mystery of God's mercy and what he wants to do. 
If you're thinking of running away from God, if you're thinking about putting away the things of Christ, let me warn you, don't do that. As we will see next week, there may very well be a great fish waiting for you. It's better, as the book of Jonah will teach us, it's better to understand the mercy of God and allow that mercy to flow through us to other people, even if we don't want them to come to Jesus. That's the message of Jonah. And that's the message of God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, your mercy is far beyond our total comprehension. But it is evident in every part of our lives. Life may not be going the way we want it to. We may not be willing to do or to be used by you in a way that you're calling us to. We've even entertained the thought of running away, trying to get from your presence, but the book of Jonah tells us that your mercy even calls us home. It brings us back. Lord, I pray that as we Think on these things of your mercy that we would be infected and affected by the wonder and the glory of who you are. And it's only then that we can begin to understand the mercy of our great God. Bless your word, O Lord, to the hearts of all this morning, and I praise you in your name. Amen.